morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, the first five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Word of God, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words from your Spirit through Paul so many years ago. Father, we pray that they would fall afresh on us in a new way, that they may sear into our hearts and minds, help us to understand you differently, that we may become more intimate with you, Father. And Lord, I pray that the words that I speak be not of myself, but be of you and glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So each week, we have gone through these passages in 1 Corinthians, and there seems to be a particular sin that is rearing its head over and over and over as we've gone through the first chapter and now as we go into the second chapter. It has become a theme in this church at Corinth, and we're going to see it throughout the entire book, and it is the same sin that rears its head in different ways. And takes different forms. And it is the sin of pride. Pride keeps or kept the church of Corinth from seeing God in the manner that they were supposed to. Pride keeps us from having a relationship with God. It makes us not come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It also stands in the way of us after we come to know him, of having a good relationship, an intimate relationship with him. It, it causes us to become estranged, if you will, from God if sin is not kept in check. And the only way that it can be kept in check is through the use and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Part of the problem is that we fail to recognize it. It will creep in in a manner that we least suspect, we don't recognize it, and then it will rear its ugly head and cause a problem between ourselves and God as we move forward in our relationship. One of the most significant ways that we can keep our relationship in check or keep the pride that interferes with our relationship in check is through our theology. And without proper theology, it's hard for us to be able to see and understand exactly how pride has entered our lives or how pride is destroying our relationship with Jesus. People oftentimes will attempt to separate theology from their Christian walk and think that "Ah, I can make it fine if I just do the best I can. But whenever we do that, we are putting our relationships with God at risk. Because there is a way that seems right to us and a way that is right. 
And oftentimes those two things can be separated. And there is a danger that we fall into sin when we allow our lives or our Christian walks to be devoid of sound theology. When that happens, then our relationship with God suffers. And we're going to see that's exactly what happened in Corinth with the Corinthian church. Now there are those that teach today and probably are teaching this very moment as I am speaking from this pulpit that Jesus died on the cross to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and eternal joy and all the riches that God has to offer. Perfect, right? Because that's true. All that's true. That's exactly why he went to the cross. And there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. But there is a timing issue that is involved in what he died for. There are some things that have been fulfilled, but there are other things that will be fulfilled. And when we try to mess with that timing, then we get all screwed up in our minds, in our theology, and in our walk with Jesus. We have to keep the proper perspective of when we receive all of the things that were promised. It's all about the timing. Believers may be tempted to say, now is the time that we will receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, eternal joy, and all the riches that God has to offer. And that's partly true. But there is a danger in saying that it is now. Many scriptures will teach us and have taught us and will continue to teach us. And I'm not going to go through them all because hopefully you all know many of them. That there's a whole lot of suffering that's going to happen right now. There's a whole lot of suffering that's going to happen to Christians right now. There's a lot of folks that's going to get sick. There's a lot of folks that's going to experience a lot of heartache. Christians. Not just talking about non-believers. We're going to suffer financial destruction that's through no fault of our own. There's a lot of pain that is involved in this life. And there's scriptures upon scriptures upon scriptures that teach that. So there's a whole group of people that throw all those out the window and say, God wants me to be healthy and wise and strong and have eternal joy right now. Well, there's a danger in that. There's a danger in that because I got news for you. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to stand up some point and say, why, God, you promised me all this other stuff and I don't have it. I have pain. I have sorrow. I don't have the money to buy lunch. I've got cancer. Why? Why? Back to the timing issue. There is coming a time when you're not going to have cancer. You're going to have all the money that you ever need. You're never going to want for anything. The joy will be eternal. The blessing supernal. There's a song in there, right? It's coming. 
Just not yet. Just not yet. But when we take, and we don't have the proper theology with that, and we take what's guaranteed to us, what's coming, and we try to interpose it on what's now, then we run the risk of bad things happening. And I believe that's what happened in Corinth. Jesus encouraged his disciples to take up their, what? Crosses and follow him. Well, folks, I will tell you that taking up a cross wasn't a lot of fun. It meant you're going to die. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be beat. You're going to be hung upside down on that cross. You're going to suffer. And it's the same admonition that he gave his disciples that also applies to us. Do we think we're better than they are? Do we think we've done something to deserve something that they didn't get? We don't. God has withheld, and I believe that God has withheld those promises until a specific time for a reason. I believe that if God gave us all of the promises in this life, right now, while sin still rears its ugly head, while this old man is still on my back trying to kill me every day, we would have a terrible issue with one, glorifying God, and two, pride would be everywhere. Because it seems like when God showers us with grace, we tend to take it to heart. And we tend to develop a sense of individual pride because of that grace. Whatever he gives us graciously, we take ownership of it, don't we? That's what we are. That's who we are as fallen people. And so there is such a danger in that. God has withheld some of the most glorious gifts for the next life. The life when we're going to have a pure heart. When we're not going to internalize anything and think, I'm responsible for whatever it is, I'm really not. That desire to glorify myself will be gone. And it will be a beautiful desire to only glorify the giver of those good and perfect gifts, being God. Because if he gives us everything in the state that we currently are, even though we're better than we were before we knew him, we ain't there yet. And I know we've all got a long way to go, including myself. We would totally usurp his glory for the glorification of ourselves the cross was ever the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind and God does not want us to overlook it he never wants us to forget the significance of the cross the glory that his son gave up so that God would be glorified in our salvation So, what about the next life when all the promises are fulfilled? Then we won't overlook the cross. We won't overlook the glorification of God. With pure hearts, as I said, there will be no desire for me to glorify myself. So until then, until then, what do we do? We struggle. We fight, we persevere, and we wait patiently 
with our imperfections. Some great, some not so great. But that's the way we are. And that's what we're called to do. But there was a problem, the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth believed that they had advanced beyond the cross. We've been saved, they're saying, and we recognize the place we were before you saved us, but now we have moved on to much greater things that we deserve. We deserve. That whole idea of being deserving of something. We do it so well as Americans. Other Christians in other countries know what it's like to be promised nothing. Nobody owes us anything. We have a hard problem with or we have a hard time understanding and appreciating that. We're not deserved deserving of anything. God owed us nothing. And we'll give a head nod and an assent to it when in our hearts we believe something totally different. Because it's the culture in which we've been raised, in which we've been fortunate enough to live our lives in. And when I say that, I don't mean to say bad things about our nation because it is the best that has ever existed. But as part of the joy of being a part of this, we develop an attitude, right? And that's part of our fallenness. That's part of our fallenness. And that attitude that we build through the grace that we've been given is, I deserve it. I deserve it. It's my right. I've got rights. But in God's eyes, we deserve nothing but his wrath and his judgment. So we have the Corinthian church that believed that they had advanced beyond the cross They had gone to the next level. They were filled with pride. They were absolutely filled with pride. They had believed or they believed that they had been given everything that God has promised. And so even though they believed that they were once foolish, they now were wise. We run that risk too. They believed that, yeah, God chose the foolish and that was us, but now we are wise. We're sort of reached the next level. We're kind of deserving of things now. We're strong and we're wise because we're with God. So Paul writes to them and he gives a little bit of sarcasm and it takes place in chapter 4. We'll get there. We're not there yet, but I do want to go there. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Already you own the cattle on a thousand hills, so to speak. You have, without us being the apostles, without us, you have become kings. And would you that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles of last of all, as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to the angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, Corinthians, are wise for Christ's sake. We are weak, being the apostles, but you, Corinthians, are strong. You are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. 
to the present hour, we hunger and thirst and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. So if you don't read this and understand Paul's sarcasm, you'll miss the whole point. See, we're apostles. We're lowly. We're not wise. We're foolish. We're weak. <clears throat> we're homeless. We're suffering. But you, you, the church at Corinth, look at you. You have all the wisdom in the world. You think that you are on a hill somewhere and you don't deserve the same that we do. They believed that they were wise and strong and kingly. And yet Paul's telling them, we, as apostles, we are fools, weak, hungry, poor, homeless, in disrepute. So what's the separation here? Why the difference? Why is it? Now, as we see this confusion that Paul's talking about, or this dichotomy between the church at Corinth and the apostles, as he lays it out with sarcasm in chapter 4, we can now look over this first chapter and the first part of the second chapter and understand a little bit greater detail why he takes so long talking about God choosing the foolish. God choosing the weak, the poor, is that that was the opposite of everything the Corinthian church stood for. You had the wealthiest of people, the strongest, or those that thought they were the strongest, those that believed that they were the wisest, according to the world, in that church. And they thought that's what they should be doing. And that's who or how they should act as Christians. Paul says, even us as apostles, we don't have that. And yet you think that you should have that and be that as a church? No, that's not right. That's not the correct view of Jesus and his kingdom. We jump back. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So, again, Paul goes back to this same theme, this same fundamental, basic theme of being a proclaimer of the gospel. I did not come to you when I visited you, he says, proclaiming God with lofty speech, which means superior speech, or wisdom, which actually means cleverness. I didn't bring with you the things of the world to add to the gospel message. I did not do that. Now, I think it's important to note that Paul, he doesn't denounce everything here. All wisdom is not bad, and that's not what he's trying to say here. I mean, we've seen great advancements in science, in the medical field, and, and clearly God has given even non-believers the ability to do that. That's not bad wisdom. But those that think and make decisions about God and who he is and eternity and philosophies and things that center around man, that's sort of what Paul's getting at here. The wisdom of the world when it comes to God and man is foolishness to God, even though they hold it out as wisdom 
to the world. Nor is he saying that he doesn't have to make any sense whatsoever when he's proclaiming the gospel message. You have to have an ability to speak to proclaim the gospel. So while he's saying, I didn't come to you with lofty speech, he still came to them in a way that they were able to understand it, right? He just didn't mimic the world. He just didn't mimic the philosophers of the time and those that were held in high esteem. Paul was a good speaker. He was a great thinker, and we see all of that, yet that he pushed back on the wisdom of the world. And he was able to write in a magnificent way that we were all able to understand. So we have to be careful and not throw it all out the door. Because we have to be able to proclaim the gospel in a manner that people are going to understand. It doesn't mean that even the delivery of the message should be so boring that you all go to sleep. It, It has to be proclaimed. And God has to be glorified through that. Paul was basically conveying that the message should not be proclaimed in a way that the focus is on him. That was the point he was making. He didn't want to proclaim the message and share the gospel message so that it pointed back to him as some magnificent thinker or great speaker or whatever the case might have been. And that's exactly what he has said in chapter 1 verse 17 and all the way through chapter one basically but specifically verse 17 when he said he did not or does not preach the gospel with eloquent wisdom he had a brilliant skill to use words particularly in writing but it was never his desire to impress people in a worldly manner he didn't want the world to look at him and say oh he's so intelligent or say oh he's such a great orator or writer or speaker Because there's a significant danger to the people that end up following that person. They lose the central message. And when they lose the central message, they lose the cross. And Paul knew that. And that's what was happening at Corinth. They had lost the cross. They had lost the cross. They didn't see the cross anymore. And they weren't humble enough to know and understand. They still needed the cross. They still needed God every day. They were a broken people that were suffering and were too foolish to even see it. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So clearly Paul is making some sort of conscious effort here to make sure that he has put up some sort of fences or walls around what he says and how he, spe- how he shares the gospel so that they won't try to follow him. And you remember back at the be- very beginning, whenever they were so quick to follow Paul or Apollos or Peter, they were clinging on out of a pride that, well, they baptized me, that what they did was right and what Apollos or Peter did was wrong. It was the pride that was coming up. So Paul put protections in place so that they would not seek him and worship him and try to make him anything other than the bringer of the gospel message so he decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified we all know that Christ and him crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks 
And yet that's what he made sure it was the only thing that he knew. By keeping the cross central in everything that he did at Corinth, he kept the cross relevant. He kept the cross at the forefront of every member of that church at Corinth and what it meant to be a Christian. Preaching Christ and him crucified all of the time eliminates the danger of us ever believing we have done something to deserve something more. If we keep our eyes on the cross and we hear that preached and we hear that proclaimed, it keeps us grounded and helps us not move beyond and get to this place where we think we don't need it anymore or we have reached some level of being a Christian that we don't look back at the cross like the Corinthians had. Because when we do that, then the pride abounds. And the more that pride abounds within us, the less we look to the cross and the less we glorify God in and through what he did on the cross. So Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. So just the opposite, right? You would think of Paul being some great, wonderful speaker with wonderful wisdom from God and who was strong and who didn't cry or wasn't in fear or wasn't in weakness and definitely didn't tremble. And he's showing us just the opposite. I was with you in those moments of weakness whenever I visited you. I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. The humility it takes to write this for all the world to see forever. I was in fear when I was with you. We trembled together. He's showing them that there's nothing wrong with this weakness. In fact, this weakness is right. This weakness is good in every way. As I said last week, it is in those moments of greatest weakness that we are closest with God. It is in those moments of greatest pride that God can never be found in our lives. When we think we are all that, when we think we are strong enough, I can do this, God's nowhere around us because we are pushing Him back. It's when we acknowledge that we are weak, when we acknowledge that we're afraid, when we acknowledge that we are trembling inside, that we are have our hands around God and we are pulled close to his breast. And that's the point Paul was making. I was there at those low moments. You all know that. If Paul had come in his own strength, power, and courage then they would have all been detracted from the glory of God. But he didn't. He showed his weakness. He showed that he wasn't somebody to be lifted up and to be glorified. And I think that's important for us all. Demonstrate our humanity with each other. And yeah, that causes us to be vulnerable. But when we do that, then God is glorified because he carries us through those moments. Those times when we're afraid, those times when we're weak and when we have fear, when we're trembling. Nobody likes those moments. Paul didn't like those moments, but we know that he had them because he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I admit my weakness, then what happens? I turn to God and say, God, I got nothing. Take me. 
help me. You give me my next step. You give me my next word coming out of my mouth. You give me my next thought. You help me through this because in my strength, I'm going to fail. I cannot do it without you. When I am weak, then I am strong because God is glorified in that. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Again, Paul's reiterating the same message. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, his speech to them was not from wise words, but it was a result of the Spirit of God working through him and the power of God, not the power of Paul, not the power that Paul had to persuade somebody or try to talk somebody into believing something. He shared with them the gospel message. If we have success as Christians, we run the risk of projecting that success on ourselves. Whatever it is. It doesn't have to be in the saving of souls. It may be in in some program that we had that was a big hit. It may be in anything, you name it. But there is a certain risk that is involved. And the problem we have is for a brief moment, we take our eyes off the cross and put our eyes on ourselves And then pride starts to build, and we become further from God. Paul's telling us at the church at Corinth, everything that he did was a demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. He did nothing according to his own wisdom or according to his own strength. Verse 5, why did he do it? Why did he do it? So that the faith, so that your faith may not rest in the power of wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's what I said last week. When we seek to glorify ourselves and we have nothing inherently in us that is glorious and people follow you or worship you or praise you, they get nothing. But when we seek to find or to make God be the object of everyone else's glory. Eternal life follows that. Paul said, I can speak with wisdom or I can speak with great words and if you worship Paul, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. Alternatively, if I speak in the power of wisdom of God and have God glorified and you believe and glorify God, then you're going to die and you're going to live eternal life. That was the difference Paul was making, and he wanted to be oh so careful to make sure that their worship or their affections were not toward him, but toward God in all things, so that their faith would not rest in men, but in the power of God. Faith faith that rests in men is worthless, but faith that rests in God is eternal. We must be careful that individuals not fall into this trap that we don't fall in this trap. We must be careful that we, we demonstrate our lives as Christians or live our lives as Christians in such a way that we stay grounded. That's basically what it is, staying grounded. And staying grounded is keeping our eyes on the cross. Not using the world or anything of the world to try to build ourselves up or not even using things in the church to try to build ourselves up. Because it happens so quickly. I see churches all over the place that try to use worldly wisdom, worldly entertainment to bring people into the church. Folks, that is a dynamic waste of time because that is absolutely seeking to glorify people. 
people and putting faith in men rather than God. If I'm trying to bring everybody in to entertain them and not share the gospel, I'm using a worldly blueprint to grow a church. And that's going to fail. That's going to fail. We should not use a worldly blueprint to grow our lives as Christians, nor should we use a worldly blueprint to grow our church. That's just the way it should not happen. We're different from the world, and we should act differently from the world. As individuals and corporately as a church, as we lead this church, we shouldn't bring business ideas into the church setting. Not going to work. We're not a business. We're based in faith in God, not faith in man that's going to fail. So everything has to be turned upside down. And it's hard for us to live with one foot in the world, dealing with the world, and one foot in Christianity trying to live our lives and move the church and grow the church through the wisdom and power of God. But yet we always need to remain conscious that it's there. And we do that by keeping our eyes on the cross. Knowing that we never outgrow the cross. That we never stop glorifying God in everything that we do. And we never stop trying to fight the fight that we do not receive the glory. But God does in all things. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the lessons that your spirit gives us. And knowing that he doesn't take the words of the world, the things of the world, and try to add them to his ministry, your ministry, that he merely uses you and Christ crucified and the cross to bring about your glory, not his self or not anyone else's father. And as we live our lives, help us to say or to stay on the cross that we maintain the cross as a central theme in our lives every day as Christians, that we never allow the pride to come in and drag us down, Lord, and we know that we can only accomplish that through your Spirit. May he be a constant reminder in all that we do, Father, whether it be as individuals or corporately as a church, that we're different, that we are to be selfless, and that all that we do, whether it is eating or drinking, be to your glory, for it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand.